tell you something. The Prince of Peace is in the house this morning, and the one with wisdom and knowledge and understanding and bringing comfort. He's here today, and God wants to meet your needs. So you're going to, uh, God's going to do good things this morning <clears throat> in his place. I'm going to read from, uh, this morning I want to read from a book that it's going to take you a little time to get there maybe, but it's from the book of Habakkuk. And uh, I think the best way to find Habakkuk is to start with Matthew in the New Testament and go backwards. And, uh, and when you hit Zephaniah, uh, yeah, kind of go backwards like that. And when you hit Zephaniah, you're there. But anyway, I'd like you to stand with me as we read from the Word of God this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and then jump to verse 17. Habakkuk, chapter 3, from the Old Testament, he's a prophet. And he's an unusual prophet, and I'll probably mention this uh, a little bit later on. He, he isn't speaking to the people. He's having a conversation with God. And so the whole book is a conversation between him and God. And he's questioning why God doesn't step in and do something with a mess that is all around him. It's a perfect book to read for the day in which we live. Listen to this from Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning. I had my ribbon in the wrong spot. You were going to get Zephaniah in there. <laughs> Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. It says, This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. I have heard all about you, Lord, and I am filled with awe by the amazing things you have done. In this time of our deep need, begin again to help us, as you did in years gone by. Show us your power to save us, and in your anger, remember your mercy. And then down to verse 17. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, and there are no grapes on the vine, and even though the olive crop fails, and the fields lie barren and empty, even though the flocks die in the fields, and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He will make me sure-footed as a deer and bring me safely over the mountains. It's a good word for us today. It's a solid word. And so I want us to pray about this, shall we? Father, we thank you that, Lord, that uh, despite the things that we see going on around us and the chaos and the confusion, and it seems like every, seems like every week there's a new upheaval in our society some <clears throat> new form of sin that erupts. Father, I pray earnestly today that in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, <clears throat> I pray that every person in this room, in this sanctuary, in this church, Father, would be sure-footed in the word of God. Father, help us to have total confidence in you. Help us to realize you know everything that's going on and that you will supply our need and the answers to the prayers that we pray. 
<clears throat> so, Father, I thank you today. I thank you for loving us and caring for us. I thank you today that for any person that has come into this sanctuary this morning with a burden upon their heart, I pray that in the name of Jesus, that burden is going to be lifted from their life. They're going to sense your power. <clears throat> They're going to sense your, <clears throat> your loving kindness and your care. And so, Father, I pray that you'll do a work. Begin that work right now in this church. And I thank you for it in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our almighty God. Amen. It's good to be able to sing the song of the Reformation. This was, uh, we're celebrating 500 years. And... Um, to some, that may not mean too much. But I'll tell you what, in my book, it means everything. And um, <clears throat> Martin Luther wrote that song. Uh, I've always found it a, a wonderful song. I like the words. I'm not, I, it's a harder one to sing, though. But I love the words. And so I appreciate the fact that we could sing it this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Just one verse this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That phrase right there, six words, the just shall live by faith. These are the six, wor the six words that altered history. I'm not exactly sure if there are any other words that you could that you could study, that you could look at, that have changed history as much as those six words right there. And by the way, the prophet Habakkuk is the first one to speak them. And they were copied out by Paul in three other places and alluded to in one other, in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. This is a verse that has had a, absolutely a profound effect on our history as much as the Declaration of Independence, and in my opinion, far more. It is the text that brought much of the Church of Jesus Christ out of the dark wanderings of the wilderness that it moved into for years, de uh, literally centuries, and brought it back to the truth of God and the truth of God's Word. This is the very text that formed the Protestant Reformation. This is it right here. We just read it. The just shall live by faith. I want us to make an important statement, and actually we sang about it in our song, that uh, in the song that we sang this morning. We have in our hands this morning the word of God. This is the word of God, and it is a constant measure of the truth of God. It is constant. It never changes. It never will change. We may change. We may even choose to say, I want to change this. And that's been done. But this word is the ultimate truth 
of everything. Without the word of God, you don't have truth. And we can debate any philosopher that you want to march up here this morning, but without this word, you don't have truth. And there's your debate. There's the, there's the, the very thing that you speak to people who said, by what means is this the, the word of God? Or why do you declare that the truth? When you say this is not truth, then who is the truth? You? 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 You are the measuring stick of truth? Am I the measuring stick of truth? Absolutely not. This word is the measure of truth. And Martin Luther figured that out. And God used him. God used him in a powerful way. Things were not going well in, in Luther's mind. I want to talk about him just for a little bit this morning. Because he was a guy that was in the Word. You know what? You get into the Word and things are going to start to change for you. You just get into the Word. Get into this Word. When you get into this Word, guess what happens? God starts speaking to you. And that's exactly what began to happen. God began to speak into his life, into his mind, and all of the things that he had been taught over those years. And Luther was a well-educated guy. He was not some dumb guy out here that just, just stumbled onto a piece of the scripture. He was well-educated in the word. And as, but as he began to read it and, and ask God and God's spirit to move upon this word and into his life and into his heart, it began to penetrate his thinking. It began to penetrate his beliefs and all of these things. The indulgence controversy was the tipping point. I believe as you look at history, Leo X was a pope. He needed money, and I think was, that money was being used for some building projects that he got involved in in the Vatican. And he cooked up this means of indulgences. Indulgences is for temporal sin and penalties. It's not about eternal penalties or anything. This is a brand new idea. This is a money-making deal. It was for the living and it was for the dead. They would set up their cross in town squares. And now you can buy indulgences, say for your mother, who they proclaimed to be in purgatory. You could kind of buy her way out, which is a sad, sad thing. And so people would pay money to get mom out of purgatory. They even had a, they even had, you've heard of pay it forward? Have you heard of that? They had a pay it forward plan too. This is pretty cool. I mean, you know, this is a 1500, 1517. They had a pay it forward plan. So Leland, you know, you, you figure, you know, man, I may sin this week, and so I'm just gonna shell out some money and that'll cover my sin. I mean, how do you get away with that? But they did. And this is basically when Luther got so angry at this terrible thing the church was doing, and he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. Number 79, there it is, nailed it. 
I found one the other day, and I, I wanted to get it up there, and I told a couple people this, and it was the same picture, same idea. It says, I don't always nail things to church doors, but when I do, things happen. <laughs> and I, I, I just, well, it didn't work. Number 79 of this, uh, of the 95, number 79 was, he said, to set up a cross in a town square is blasphemy to compare it to the cross of Christ. Amen. Number 82, since the Pope created purgatory, why doesn't the Pope in, empty out purgatory? He has the power to do so, and Luther had no idea of, of the repercussions that 95 theses nailed to the church door was going to create in his day. He had no idea of this. The 95 theses were written in Latin, but they were quick, quickly translated into German. They were quickly distributed to the people, and people loved him because they hated what was happening. They hated how their faith was being manipulated, how, how things in the church was being absolutely made a shame. And so you mass produced these. Isn't it interesting how God works? This would have never worked 100 years prior. You know why? There was no printing press. So 100 years prior, God had somebody invent the printing press. And now, 100 years later, we can mass produce these things. Just like that. God's in control of this stuff, folks. Don't ever forget that. God's in control. This angered the Pope. And so he called Luther a drunken German. And he figured that uh, he would definitely recant these 95 theses as soon as he sobered up. Uh, Luther wanted to appeal to the secular powers. The Pope was very upset. He wanted to put him on trial. Uh, and in those days, the Pope was actually above the emperor, a guy named Charles V, who, told, uh, who, was told, who was told by the Pope, go out and kill Luther. And he didn't want to do that because Luther was incredibly popular. And so he didn't really want to do that, and so he thought maybe a trial would be better. And so Charles V, Fifth said we should do this trial. Luther thought this was okay too, but he probably thought, listen, I think I'm going to get executed over this thing. That's what they did to people in those days. In fact, he called the Pope the Antichrist. He says the Antichrist reigns. And he said this of the Pope, I will reply to the Emperor, I will not recant. But of the Pope, I previously have said the Pope is the vicar of Christ. I recant that. He says the Pope is the adversary of Christ and the apostle of the devil. I'm going to tell you why. It takes guts to take a stand. And it still does today. You take a stand in this culture for Jesus Christ, and I'm going to tell you what, it's going to take some courage. Because oftentimes you walk out into the midst of the crowd and you're the only one. It takes courage today. It takes courage to stand for truth. Thy word is truth. This is truth. So anyway, they're going to have uh, they're going to have this trial. <clears throat> and he says to to your Majesty, he says, since I am convicted by the Scripture, I do not accept the counsel of your counsel or of popes. And uh, 
He says, these are, and these are some words that we need to inscribe in our hearts. He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Captive to the word of God. And I will not recant of anything. And here I stand, and I can do no wrong. Powerful. Powerful. So anyway, you know, the, uh, this uh, emperor was in a tough spot. And so... I think this is a little, there's some humor in this thing. It's kind of dark, but there is a little humor in it. And he says, well, here's the deal. We're going to offer you safe conduct back to Wittenberg. We will guarantee your safety to get back to Wittenberg, but once you're back there, anybody can kill you. So, I mean, you know, you talk, you talk about Pilate saying, I'm washing my hands here. This is a guy that, this is a guy that he follows Pilate. I'm going to wash my hands, but anybody can kill you. Go ahead, just shoot. And so, that same night on the way back to uh, Wittenberg, he was ambushed by a group of people that was favorable toward him. He was taken to Wartburg Castle. There he disguised himself as a servant. And in 10 months, he translated the Latin, I'm sorry, translated the entire Greek New Testament into German for the German people. Luther is one of these guys that said, if I can get this Bible into the hands of people in a good hymnal, he says, I'm just going to stand back and let it happen. Those were his words. And so the Reformation is more than Luther, more than his 95 thesis nailed to a door, a church door in Germany. Because out of the Reformation flowed these very important points that I want to uh, share with you here. They're very brief. I'm going to put them on the screen. Four points, and I've added a fifth. Sola Scriptura, which simply means the Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Sola Fide, meaning faith alone. Faith alone. Sola Gratia, meaning grace alone. Solos Christus, meaning Christ alone. And the fifth one, glory to God alone. You'll find these in my text this morning from Romans chapter 1. They're in Galatians chapter 3, 11, also in Hebrews 10, 35. And they're alluded to in Ephesians chapter 2. Habakkuk saw the spiritual decline in his and the deterioration of his culture. He saw this. We see it today. Anybody with any, any intelligence at all sees the decline of what's happening in our culture today. And we've often said, God, why don't you do something about it? Why doesn't God step into this, this thing over here, this thing that bothers us so much? Why don't you do something that can change that? And we wonder about it because it seems like God's doing nothing about it. These few words that are quoted in the New Testament, the just shall live by faith. We live in these similar days as the prophet. And many of us also see the same kind of declines. And we realize what America needs more than anything in the world, America needs revival. America needs renewal. 
of its of its uh, of the, the, the the spiritual renewal of its people, and this has happened before in this country. It's happened a couple of times, and it's happened several other times in in more minor, more localized ways. There is a revival that is needed that that could sweep across the land, but I'm going to remain optimistic about this, and I'll tell you why. I've titled this message, Reformation, Why We Need a New One. And in Reformation, I'm thinking of this right now, that the one we need is the power of the Holy Spirit of God to help us with the understanding of what is God calling us to do. We've got to lock into this thing of what is God calling us to do. It's a reformation that calls on us to daily stop and really listen to the still small voice of God that still speaks into people's hearts, that still directs people's lives, that still whispers his instruction into their ears and into their hearts. We need this. We desperately need this. I believe reformation has always been a part <clears throat> of God's plan for us. And it's certainly been a part for his church. I want us to understand as we celebrate 500 years that begin with in 1570, 17 with 95 theses na uh, nailed to a church door. It actually all began when an obscure Jewish rabbi named Jesus appeared on the scene and this Jesus flipped over the religious establishment of his day. He literally flipped the table over of what was going on of the people of his day. This is a guy named Jesus who healed sick people on Sunday. He overturned tables in the temple. He spoke truth to religious power. And when he left this world, he said this. Clearly, he said, I promise you, I will send you another comforter who will come right alongside you, who will be with you, and he will be in you, and he will move upon your life in powerful days. That comforter was introduced on the day of Pentecost as the church was birthed in great power. As followers of Christ, we are people of reformation. And it's demanded of us to hear the voice of the Spirit. And often that same voice is calling us into uncharted territory and moving past our comfort zones. When I typed those words, I couldn't help but think of what's going on at LifeGate. This is uncharted territory. This is way beyond the comfort zone of what we've got here. And I love what we've got here. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything against what we've got here. But it moves us beyond that into a world where there is a need for the gospel, where there is a need for people to come to Christ, a living Christ that can change their life, not religion. We're sick up to here with religion. We've got so much of it, we can drown in it. What we need is relationship, and we need Christ and him alone. And the power that can do that is not my power. It is not educational power. It is not willpower. It is the power of the Holy Spirit of God that moves the church forward.
And anybody who thinks otherwise, you simply don't know what you're talking about. Not at all. I believe you'd agree with me that much of the church today has become dull and stagnant and in dire need of reformation. It is a church that has refused to hear what the Spirit says and instead settles for some brand of complacency of let's get along. I had a phone call from a lady about uh, probably a week or ten days ago. And she had come through a life group. I am getting some interesting phone calls like this. Wow. This was one of them. She says, I, I want to talk to you. And she said, do you, you said you felt like the Spirit of the Lord led you in that message. I said, yes, I did. And uh, she says, why can't that happen in our church? And I said, well, where do you go to church at? And she told me. And I thought, I actually thought I'm trying to be snide about this. I said, well, you don't have to say anymore. But um, anyway, she went to her pastor. And she says, Pastor, why don't you hear from God? I tell you what, we have Mrs. Martin Luther in the audience today, and <laughs> she's on it. She's on it. And he said, well, uh, I get my messages in the mail. And she said, what do you think about that? And of course I told her what I thought about that. I thought it was horrible. I said, we need to be people that listen to God. We need to find out what God is saying to the church. Not just the church all over America, but the church here in Palmer, Iowa. And it's going to be vastly different from what we hear for Palmer, Iowa, than it is in Des Moines, Iowa. Because God does stuff here that he may not be doing there, and doing stuff there that he's not going to do here. Got it? We got it? We're not, we're not just cookie cutter stuff here. We need to be hearing from God. And I said to her, I said, well, that's, that's how it works. And we talked about that for a little bit and everything else. But the thing of it is, we need a revival of God's spirit to move upon preachers' hearts, to move upon the hearts of people. I sit here often. It's been more than one time when I've sat here and I, and I feel like I've heard the voice of God saying, pray for people this morning. But Lord, it's not on the agenda. Well, scratch the agenda. Pray for people today. And stuff like that. This goes on. This is a part of the church. Can you imagine some church in, in another place in which the Spirit of God would actually say that? Now what are we going to do? Our liturgy's got all messed up. We're in a mess here. Okay. I press on, but not too far. Acts chapter 10 gives us an interesting story, and I, and I tell you what, I've read this story on several occasions, and the first time I ever read it, I didn't quite understand it. 
I thought, I'm not quite sure how this fits. And so I kept reading it again until, I, I, until I'm quite certain I have the understanding on it. But it's Peter. It's a story of Peter. And God is, he's, he's sitting on top of a roof, on a rooftop, and God gives him a vision up there, and a part of this vision is like a sheet that comes down out of heaven with all kinds of animals on it, and God is saying, go eat. Now, Peter is a good Jewish boy that loves God and loves the word and all of this thing. He knows the word, and he knows that, no, I'm not going to go eat, you know, pork tenderloins and ham sandwiches and bacon, lettuce, and tomato. None of this stuff for me. I'm a, I'm a good Jewish kid. I know my stuff. God does it again. Third time, he says, Peter, eat it. Sometimes it takes more than once for us to get our, our attention. Finally, God says, just take it and eat it. But there was a spiritual sense to this because Peter went into the home of Cornelius. Who's Cornelius? He's a Gentile. Why would a Jew go into a Gentile's house? Peter went in, presented the gospel. This Gentile household heard what Christ does to transform lives and hearts. They came to Christ. The Bible says Peter baptized them. This whole house was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. One chapter later, in the middle of the chapter, the guys down in Jerusalem said, Peter, what are you doing in these Gentile houses? He says, they came to Christ. How did that happen? Because the Spirit of God moved upon them. They came to Christ. They were baptized and they were filled with the Spirit. And Jerusalem says, oh boy, that sounds good to us. Looks like that was the open door. That's the open door for me. That's the open door for you, Craig, because the Gentiles heard about Jesus. Up to this point, it was just the Jews, but now the whole world gets to know. Everybody gets to know. And the wonder of Christ and the wonder of Christ transforming lives comes real into people's lives. That's the reformation we need. That's what we need. That's what we long for. That's what we desire. You know, <clears throat> back in the late 1960s, I was in college, and then in the early 70s, I was getting out everything. Jonah and I were not Christians at that time. But the phenomena was beginning to happen in our country. And it was called the Jesus Movement. Powerful. Crazy thing. Because back in 1968, we had Woodstock. Have you ever seen film and pictures of Woodstock? You just shake your head. Some of you remember that, don't you? Were anybody here you at Woodstock? Oh, okay. Who's laughing over there? You were, well, you were not at Woodstock. You're too young. <laughs> Woodstock was a crazy event. 
And it wasn't all good either, but the Jesus movement, the Jesus movement began to come out of some things. There was disillusionment everywhere. I mean, it was thick. The Vietnam War was just meandering on and on. And there was anger, and there was protests. I remember in 1971, driving back into Iowa City, I'd just gotten off of active duty. And there was a protest going on. I saw the soldiers. I saw the guardsmen. They were guarding some building on the Pentecrest of the University of Iowa's campus. I said, oh my God, I know what it is. I saw what it was. There were drugs, Eastern mysticism. You walk through an airport and you got, you got the Hare Krishnas all over the place doing their thing and all of this stuff. People were disillusioned. Young people were just, just bad. And then a group of people in all cities of all the world that you could think of in San Francisco, California, went to a place one night, a group of them, they were searching. And in their disillusion, they came into this place and they heard about a, a man that could change their life. They heard about Jesus. No doubt there were church kids in that bunch with their long hair and their weird clothes, smoking pot, doing dope, the whole thing. But they heard about Jesus. They heard about how he changed lives. And their lives were changed. They told their friends. Their friends came. So whoever the pastor was, he said, I guess we need to get you guys baptized. So they took them to the Pacific Ocean, which is a good thing. There's a fair amount of pollution here. So we took them to the Pacific Ocean, and God continued to work in their lives. They were baptized. And a powerful thing erupted called the Jesus Movement. Made the uh, cover of Time magazine. We got you a picture of it. It's pretty psychedelic. On January 1st, 1971, Billy Graham was the Grand Marshal of the Rose Bowl Parade. And as he's going through the streets of Pasadena, suddenly his, his uh, vehicle that he was riding in or whatever he was riding out was just absolutely mobbed. It was surrounded by hundreds of these Jesus people who wanted to see Billy Graham. And they kept holding their fingers up. One way, one way, one way. Remember that? Some of you are old enough. In fact, Billy Graham was so impressed. Touched his heart, he wrote a book called The Jesus Generation, and he encouraged them. They met later on that summer, 80,000 of them gathered in Dallas, Texas, in some football stadium to worship God. They introduced all kinds of new music. They had this large gathering. There was campus revivals, campus gatherings, and all kinds of things started out here. And then they started coming into the church. 
And I'm going to tell you this right now, sadly, not too many churches like that. The Pharisees of those churches took one look at them and their long hair, weird clothes, no shoes, flip-flops. Said, boy, you don't look like our pastor in his suit and tie and the rest of the setting we're here today. They weren't excited. And so there was a lot of things that happened in those days, but there were some churches that were excited. You know, what's interesting today to me is that these people are running the church now. Well, some of them are running the church. Not all of them. You know, I've had a brush with uh, revival in my ministry. Real revival. In a couple churches I was pastoring. And I'm going to tell you something about revival. I want you to hear this. Hear me well. Revivals are messy. You know why? Because you get a bunch of people that come in and get touched by Jesus. But they bring everything else with them. They didn't dump it off at the door. They bring all kinds of stuff in with them. Because they don't know any better. They're not disciples. They just don't understand the word or anything. They just understand that their life got changed by Jesus. And they're just happy to be here. And so there's pockets of immaturity and, and there's moments of confusion and stuff like that. We saw this. And you have to pastor a revival. You've got to pastor. This isn't something you just go say, whoopee, let it go. You have to pastor these things and help people. Folks, just in the days of Martin Luther, we have churches that have ceased to understand the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It simply has ceased. We have not lived in the power of the word or the power of the spirit. Could it be possible that we've forgotten about those whom Jesus came and died on a cross? It would not be so we could be comfortable, but that we'd be his instruments of grace to touch and bring healing to a world that was Donnelly, could you come back, please? Could you play that song, Find It, Christ the Solid Rock? Folks, we celebrate today what began actually 500 years ago, and many would say that actually that began about 1,500 years before that, when Jesus was around. And I suggest we're also in people of need of a reformation. And this is something that's constant. Folks, I'm going to tell you something right this. You, you, you can't just say, let's maintain status quo here at Faith Community Church. Let's just maintain it. We love what we've got. We love, we love everything about it. We love our music. We love our church. We love our sanctuary. We love our people that are all around us and everything. And all of that is fine. That's wonderful. But the church is not static. It is dynamic. It is moving forward. You won't find a static church in the, in the New Testament. You won't find it. It's not there. But what you find is a dynamic church. You'll find a church that is constantly changing, constantly even adjusting. The message stays the same. The message never changes. 
but how it's done is constantly being adjusted and moved and moved upon. It is not a thing that we say, I found my comfortable spot and here I sit. And all of that. We need a spark and fresh fire from heaven. Our, folks, our nation is not going to be saved because the Republicans are in or the Democrats are in or out or the conservatives are running it and the liberals aren't. It's not going to be saved that way. It's only going to be saved through the power of Jesus Christ that is released through the Spirit of God working in his church. That's how it's released. That's how it goes forward. That's how God is at work. And the good news is this. It's often during these periods when the clouds are the darkest, where sin seems to be more bold, when faith seems to be the weakest, that God shows up and finds a faithful few. And God doesn't need many. God doesn't need 300 to work with. God just needs a faithful few. He'll take 300. That's what he whittled Gideon's army down to. But he'll take those faithful few and he'll use them powerfully to destroy the works of the enemy. To bring the brilliance of the light of Christ into dark communities and bring healing and hope and the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, and when we assemble ourselves together, it's not so that we can just satisfy what the routines are of the day. It's so that we can only be satisfied when we've encountered the spirit of the living God touching our lives, bringing hope, bringing renewal, bringing change. God's the answer. And I'm praying that God use us right here in this church, Faith Community Church, to be just that to be a light and a lighthouse to bring hope to communities. I'm not so much worried about, and I got plenty of people that love to worry about all the internal functions of a church. Fine. I'm worried about the external people that so desperately need deliverance. And without him, they're lost. They'll never make heaven. They'll never make Before we, we're going to sing that first verse so you guys get that ready. Bring up the first verse here pretty quick. I'll never forget an old farmer that was in our church in Algona. And he said this on many occasions to me, and I, I don't know if it sunk in well at the time, but it does today. And he always remember, Jackie always came up to me and he says, Pastor, without Jesus, we'd have never made heaven because we were going there. That's simple, isn't it? We'd have never made heaven. Because we're going the wrong way. Stand with me. Let's put the words up. First verse only. Then we're done. Sing with me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I 
dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the word of God. Father, I pray that you'll take this message in whatever form that you could possibly use it and speak into people's lives and hearts. Father, touch our lives and touch our hearts. I pray that this morning, I pray, <clears throat> I, I pray that there be somebody in the room today that, Lord, that uh, there's been something said in this message that really, uh, that really, that really shook them, that really penetrated, that really caused them to think clearly, clearly about their life, about eternity, about heaven, about God, about sin, about the amazing grace of God and faith. Father, we pray that faith would come alive right now. Faith as simple as a little, uh, a, a little mustard seed, a childlike faith. A childlike faith would simply reach out and say, Jesus, come into my heart. Would you come in today? Would you forgive me of my sin? I've done it wrong, and I've been wrong. I want Jesus to be the Savior and the Lord of my life. I believe Jesus Christ died for me. I believe he rose from the dead for me. Today I ask him into my heart to be my Savior and my Lord. I am going to live for Christ from this moment on. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's lift our hands for the blessing of God. Father, may the Lord bless and keep every person, every person standing here this morning. Let our hearts be filled with gratitude and grace. Let our lives be lives that walk in faith. Father, I pray, help us to, as we leave this building, we leave with great hope. We leave with victory in our lives. Father, I pray that the song of our heart can be sung in the marketplaces of our, of our day. Reach somebody to this coming week through our testimony, through our lives, through a word. Father, let us speak words of life so that others might live. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.